You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Hello, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. And, oh, before we talk about Let's Kill Hitler, because we're going to talk about Let's Kill Hitler this week, we don't usually do news, but let's do a little piece of news, because something that I've been involved in, and some of the rest of you perhaps might have, you and 42. No. Nobody? I didn't manage it. Oh, you're all useless. I know. I wanted to, but I didn't. Couldn't think of anything that was. Yeah. I, I don't know. One of those. I don't know. I knew it was going on. <laughs> oh, you're useless. <laughs> you don't really know much about what's going on. Full stop. Though. <laughs> Do you know what Let's Kill Hitler's about? <clears throat> Is it How to Kill Hitler? We'll talk in about that in, in a minute. Instruction manual. <clears throat> all right. You and Forty Two is the latest in the You and Who sort of line of books. It's. Edited by Anthony Burge and Jessica Burke, who came to me with the idea about two years ago and said we'd like to do a You and Who style book about Douglas Adams. And I said, well, you don't need me for that. You just go off and do it yourselves. And they said, well, we'd like to do it with watching books. And I said, well, okay, fine, fair enough. And um, they used the You and Who website and I give them as much help as I could. But, I mean, to be honest they know what they're doing they did it themselves mm. and um well a few months um matt doe who works with andrew skilleter at who dares publishing came to me and after we reviewed a few of their things on the podcast and he knew i was writer and an editor and such and he said have you got any books coming up that we could publish because we're looking at getting into publishing books because they'd been publishing the art cards and calendars and such. Mm. They said, we want to get back into publishing books, like Who Dares had published books in the 80s. Have you got anything that you think might be appropriate? And I said, well, there's some You and Who titles coming up. I mean, they're all for charity, which sort of simplifies things in one way, but I don't know whether you'd be interested. And they looked at all the titles and said, oh, yeah, we'd like to do that. We'd like to do that. We'd like to do that. And this is the first of them to make it into print. So You and 42 is coming out with Who Dares Publishing. If anybody knows what the You and Who books are about, people write about their experience of something rather than about the thing itself. So it's not a book of reviews, but it's a book of anecdotes and memories about how people have experienced the thing. And this is about Douglas Adams. There's a lot about the hitchhikers. There's a lot about his Doctor Who stories. There's a lot about Dirk Gently mm-hmm. and all the other things and all sorts of other things in there. It's about 340-odd pages, I think. And it's just gone up for pre-order. It's out at the end of April. It's just gone up for a pre-order on the Who Dares publishing website. And it's all for <coughs> um, Save the Rhino, which was Douglas mm-hmm. Adams... Yeah. Favourite charity. Fantastic. Brilliant. Yeah. And a nice cover. Oh, gorgeous <laughs> cover by Robert Hammond. Mm, mm. I mean, this is the thing. 
I've just said as well is like when I was doing them at watching because originally the you and who books were with a publisher and then when they fell out of print I brought them back into print myself but through a print to order service and as I said the a couple of days ago having a book come out with a publisher like that who can who's got the wherewithal to get somebody to design a nice cover like that is totally different from me bunging a cheap self-designed cover on a barely proofed manuscript on creator space mm. this is going to be one of them is quite really... well drawn I think but yeah <laughs> <clears throat> um, I didn't mean the drawings were nice <laughs> Simon <laughs> I meant the covers were a bit ad hoc <clears throat> And they certainly were, but this one certainly That was the is. charm, though. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's <laughs> much nicer. It's like going an old school fan. I know. I know. It's gorgeous, isn't it? It's, um, it's like the, old, the restaurant at the end of the universe. Yeah. Cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. It looks gorgeous. And if the inside is as gorgeous as the outside, it'll be a really lovely book. So everybody go out and pre-order it, and if you haven't pre-ordered it yet, then you're not allowed to continue listening to the rest of this podcast until you do. Um, let's kill Hitler. Just giving them an out. I've just heard all the clicks on the uh, tape recorder there. Stop. <laughs> the tape recorder. Christ, what century are you living in? Twentieth. Um, <clears throat> okay, before we talk about when we last saw it and what we first thought of it. I just want to knock one thing on the head about Let's Kill Hitler before we start. Everybody always says, oh, why Hitler? He's only in it for two minutes. And people don't seem to, or some people, because uh, it's not a very popular story, let's face it. And it's one of those ones that people will beat around the head with just about any stick they can get hold of. And people have said, well, what's the point of going back to Nazi Germany? Because it's got nothing to do with the story whatsoever. The whole point of the whole arc of series six is that Stephen Moffat's taken the Hitler paradox and reversed it. So the Hitler paradox is the most commonly brought up response to what would you do if you had a time machine question, basically. And, you know, one of the things that he said, how do we know we can't travel, travel in time? Because nobody's gone back and killed Hitler yet and stopped him from doing what he was doing. So the Hitler paradox is, you know, if we had time machines, then history would have changed and Hitler wouldn't still exist. The whole point of series six is that Stephen Moffat's taken that whole would you change time by going back in time to kill Hitler to can you change time by going back in time to save the Doctor from dying? So Let's Kill Hitler is abs- is actually the absolute crux of series six. It is the big example in the middle of the series that describes exactly what Stephen Moffat's doing with that series. And as a series about time travel, because series five wasn't necessarily about time travel, the whole cracks in time had been sent back through time by the exploding TARDIS, but the actual plot of series five wasn't about time travelling to stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. So series six is Moffat's signature series where he does the time paradox thing that he does in Blink and elsewhere across the whole series. So, of course, somewhere in that series, you have to acknowledge the Hitler paradox. And he does it by calling an episode Let's Kill Hitler. But it's also a joke. Well, that's absolutely it. Because Hitler's such a big concept that they put him in a cupboard. It's the same thing that... 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Spielberg did with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <clears throat> Hitler appears once in that, and it's to actually hold the thing it's that Mr. he's Bonson. always wanted, <laughs> and it's a joke, and then he never appears again. Mm. So it's sort of it's also quite yeah. Bill and Ted's as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, isn't it Napoleon? Yeah. Well, that's a separate issue that I was going to get to later. Okay. <laughs> I was just bringing up the Hitler paradox mm. for the ones whose head it went over or whatever. But okay, so uh, let's go round the table and say how long it is before this time we saw it, the, the last time we saw it, and what we thought of it the first time. Lee, um, I mean, watched all the series quite recently, so about three months ago. Oh wow! Um, and uh, it was very enjoyable. The first time you saw it? The first time I saw it, it was very enjoyable. But I, I think it was, I rated it in my head, uh, you know, maybe, it was okay. It was an okay episode. It didn't really blow me away. I just thought there was bits in it that were fantastic and bits in it were like, and it's about three sets. So you could almost set the whole thing on stage, actually. Yeah. But, um, and I was thinking, you know, it, it's, I'll get into it actually a bit later, but it, was, it just, it's an amazingly large subject to deal with war and Nazi Germany and Hitler. And it was just done so pleasantly. <laughs> well, I'm not going to stick him in a cupboard. And I, well, let's get on with the rest of the story. It's nothing to do with Nazi Germany whatsoever, which was perfect. Um, and the backdrop was was fine, fine to have it there. But it did, you know, it was just a backdrop. It was a bit of fun, and I enjoyed it. It was a bit of fun telling a very, very important part of the story, and everybody had to be quite serious in their deliveries and their acting in such bizarre circumstances. It's such a a bonkers story. The whole, the whole lot of that season, and this thing in the middle, and it also had to be lighter. I think after a good man goes to war, which is quite a dark episode. Well, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Lee. And good night. Oh, sorry, Simon. I'm already asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, how long? Just actually, before we ask Simon how long he since he saw it, you watched the whole of series six about three months ago, Lee. I did, yeah. Even though I've been saying for about the last six to nine months that we were going to be doing series six this year. It was cramming. I'm out myself. Fair enough, why not? You know it better than the rest of us now, I guess. Simon, yes. how long since you watched it I... and... What did you think of it first time? I think I might have watched it a couple of times when it, on transmission. So watched it on transmission, then watched it quite soon again after that. Not watched it again, even though I'd intended to, and then eventually watched it again last week. And um, at the time, I, it, like Lee was saying, there's a load of elements that I absolutely loved, like a big box of chocolates, all lovely yeah. bits and pieces, and Melody Pond. I wish we'd had more Melody. Mm-hmm. I could have done with it about two or three stories of her. Mm. Before she changed, um, and yeah, but but it was like Lee says, absolutely bonkers. And at the time, trying to make sense of all that, and it was so fast, mm-hmm. everything seemed to be flying in all different directions. But I liked what was there, what was kind of floating around. Um, yeah, do you want me to talk about the most recent watch? No, we'll do that afterwards. Okay, now. Um, last time I watched it was on transmission or like Simon slightly after that maybe I watched it twice back then I think I thought at the time because there was that gap between a good man goes to war and let's kill Hitler so it, I was anticipating a big dramatic opening episode that tied up all the loose ends from the good man goes to war 
And because it sort of did that, but in a way that I wasn't expecting, and in a tone I wasn't expecting. I was going to say, it did do that, really. It did do that, but in a tone I wasn't expecting. Yeah, yeah. Which is completely different from The Good Man Goes to War. And yeah, that, and next it, time, let's kill Hitler. Yeah. You should have so, expected Well, it. <laughs> yeah. So, but at the time, I, I felt disconcerted by it. I felt that it jarred slightly. And I think that meant that it felt like a sort of a filler episode when it shouldn't have been a filler episode. Oh. And I watched it again about four or five years ago when I did all the other Moffat stuff that I've been saying at the start of every review we've been doing of this series. And the first time I watched it, I had the same, and yet at the same time, completely the opposite response to Matt. It totally wasn't what I was expecting, tonally, I suppose. And yet it did all the things that I thought it might do and more. And I just adored it. I I I love to be surprised. When something comes out of your rear view mirror and turns out to be not what you thought it was going to be, <laughs> then it can go one of two ways. Sometimes it can really let you down. And then sometimes it can really surprise you in a good way. And this really surprised me in a good way. I absolutely loved it. So what do we think of it now? Should we go round backwards and do in a nutshell what we think of now and then get into some details, Matt? So now, actually having watched it, knowing what, knowing the tone, prepared for the tone, watching A Good Man Goes to War the week before rather than a few months before, mm-hmm. I actually liked it a lot more. And I liked, I liked the tone. Um, I thought it was much funnier than I remembered. Um, and actually I found it quite refreshing. So A Good Man Goes to War... <coughs> felt like it totally it had reached a kind of a peak of a particular tone almost like a darkness or a sort of the doctor becoming so so mm. important and this kind of punctured that which felt welcome to me this time um and yeah yeah i really liked it i thought it was it was sort of spielberg like yeah that's it what is. it reminded me of i was watching it thinking less um, more of sort of Indiana Jones than anything else. Well, Just I was like gonna, the, last, the Last Crusade. I mean, it's, yeah, I was going to bring this up, but I mean, now you've sort of brought it up already. I might uh, Philip Hinchcliffe, in interviews since Doctor Who's returned, has said that if he had stayed on for season fifteen instead of essentially being sacked at the end of season fourteen as he was, he would have gone a lot more. Alan Quartermain type stuff in season 15. In other words, season 15 of classic Doctor Who would have resembled in some ways the sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark films. And basically, that's what Stephen Moffat's done here. Yeah. This is very sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark type stuff here Mm. with the sort of time travel (laughs) sci-fi shenanigans. I like the the Tesselector as well, which felt... Uh, perhaps at the time it felt like there was a sort of a conflict between the stuff in the Tesselector and the Tesselector and the kind of the Indiana Jonesy stuff outside. But this time it blended together much better. Yeah. And the yeah. effect of the Tesselector holds up really well, I think. Oh, I really like the, that transformation yeah. effect. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Simon, this time? This time I adored it. I loved it for all the same reasons that I love Terror of the Autons. It's, it's just. It's like a comic book. It just mm. does what it wants to. It's all over the place, but it completely makes sense. And you get the high drama, and then you get the comedy, and then you people change, and and 
it just uh, it just does stuff that other shows just can't do. Mm. Um, it's just so colourful and so vibrant and alive and brilliantly written and brilliantly acted and the cast were great and I, I can't fault it really. I really, really loved it. Wow. About you, Lee. You just said all the things I was going to say. Oh, good. Um, all right. I used to say vivid. Maybe. <laughs> he didn't use the word vivid. He said alive. What I want to so. well, know is somewhere in the world, somebody you know the band, the Selector, the, the Scar Band. <laughs> yeah. They they probably say to Selector. To Selector. Yeah, probably not. Um, the, that the, was well worth bringing up. Sorry, thank did. you. <laughs> You have to write that one down. <laughs> the, the only difference, well, the only thing I can say is any different really is that when I was watching it this time around, it must have been about the fourth or fifth time I've seen it now, is that I thought, do you know what? Instead of actually watching the story, because I know the story, I almost know scene by scene, word for word, what's going on already, just in like four or five watches. Um, I was just watching all the bits I missed. So, like, uh, there's a scene where uh, the Doctor and River are having this little dual thing with the gun and you yeah. know you see the kind of oh, switch around switch and yeah that. and I thought the first few times I kept missing that I couldn't, can't get my head around where, where people were putting their hands and all and I was watching it the first time round and seeing how they were going to do it it's just brilliant I mean that's a brilliant piece of writing brilliant piece of direction it's, you know and that's just literally about 20 or 30 seconds of this incredible episode it's a film in 45 minutes crammed in 45 minutes and it's the polar opposite to say something like smile which is uh, you know 45 minutes of an idea that could have been told in two minutes mm-hmm. yeah this had a lot didn't it and sorry matt what do you like smile i don't mind smile i think i, def- I defend this, the episodes where not very much happens i, I think it's very it tells a smaller very smaller story so long as they're balanced yeah. by these so that's the good thing about Doctor Who. You can tell. I mean, in a sense, in The Good Man Goes to War, not a lot happens. It's kind of people get gathered and then they have a fight and that's it. So in terms of event, it's it's more sort of potential. Well, that's the same here. I mean, not that mm. much happens in action, weirdly. I mean, it may feel like it. Yeah. But it's like one room, then a street, then another room. Yeah. And then the Tesselector, maybe, and a field at the beginning. But generally speaking, there's not a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, but on. I think the Tesselector in the field <laughs> and and the chase through the streets on which motorbikes. Is, which is two seconds long. It's quite but big. there's still quite a lot of... In, 45, was... in a 45-minute story, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's quite a lot of event happening. It is a lot. It is, though, as Lee says, it is a lot of people standing around talking at each other in rooms. But they're doing quite so well. Yeah. That's it. That's the thing. But the thing is, it's what they're talking about. Mm. It's what they're raising and what that's changing. So let's talk about some of the elephants in the room. I'll come back to the baby in a minute. Hey! <laughs> Don't point, point at me. It. That's a cheap joke. <laughs> I do it every time. Make every time. time. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help it. It's like, it's like what I do. Yeah. It'd be after my tusks. One of the criticisms I keep hearing is we don't meet Mel's before this. We've had Amy as a companion for a season and a half mm. now, and we've not met Mel's yet. And the, the the gist of it is, if we'd have met Mel's once or twice, it would have been easier to accept her as the friend, and therefore a bigger surprise when she changes. But on the other hand. If we'd have been, we probably wouldn't have been introduced to her in series five, right? It would have been in series six. 
if we'd have been introduced to her in series six, yeah, yeah, yeah. after the episode where we see the small girl regenerating, but before, oh, and, you know, but before we hear that River Song is the daughter of Amy and Rory, then it would have been easy to point at Mel's and say, well, hang on a second, that means she's probably going to be the yeah. in-between regeneration. Yeah. Mm. It could potentially have completely support, completely spoiled the surprise. Mm. But also I got the, I got the impression that because we hadn't seen her before, and I don't know if they were going for this, but it felt like there's that bit in Buffy where she suddenly gets a sister, Dawn, and the sister just appears. And half the mystery is who the sister is, where the sisters come from, and why they've kept her hidden. And there's a reason in Buffy, but it felt a bit like that, which is where the criticism comes in. But I quite like that. It's almost like she didn't <coughs> exist before, but now now that timeline is happening. Then I, I don't think exist. that's what we're supposed to take from it. I don't think so, but that's what it sort of felt like. Because they had the flashback scenes where you kind of fill in the time. Flashbacks were great, yeah. weren't they? Mm-hmm. So much fun. Um, but then this criticism sort of comes from the same place as when people say, well, how can you suddenly be talking about the hybrid in Series 9 when we've never heard about that before? Well, the reason we've never heard about it before is because it's never been relevant before. So, you know, same criticism as... Where were you in 1986 during the events of the 10th planet? Where were Torchwood during the events of yeah, Battlefield I and mean, all this kind of stuff? It simply hasn't been written, has it? It's yeah. It hasn't been thought of. You don't bring something up until the relevant... I mean, you don't. You can't bring up an idea before you've had the idea. But then when you do have the idea, you don't bring it up before the yeah. point at which it's relevant. Why doesn't anyone mention Yoda in Star Wars? I know the great thing about Mel's is you're suddenly surprised with this new character in this episode, which deflects your attention away from the relevance of that character. Mm. It's the very fact that she turns up in this episode that means you don't guess who she's going to turn out to be. That was mm. that was a complete shock when she, you suddenly realised she was going to regenerate. And even today, like fourth, fifth time I've seen it, the hair still went up um, on the back of my yeah. neck in that scene. Yeah, especially when she delivers that fantastic line of, um, you know, ask them yourself. They're both in the room. You know, yeah. Mom, you know, yeah. Who the parents are, sort of thing. There's a beautiful realization over the three faces as yeah. she's trying to get, you know, regenerate <coughs> and have the biggest moment in her life. It's here we go, we're going to change now. And they're all sitting there going, sorry. What, and the three she, faces. And then they just sort of <laughs> gradually back away as yeah. if to say, oh, hang on a second. It's fantastic. <laughs> and you don't. Often, because that is a classic moment in sort of horror movies, the sudden realisation and you're back away. But here it's done for completely the opposite Mm. reasons, but works in exactly the same way. Mm. It it was a fantastic moment. Who directed this, do you know? I was going to say, I should have looked before I came, because it is brilliantly directed. But nobody... It's quite quite seamless, really, isn't it? I mean, it's... There's nothing that just juts out with a bit of bad direction here, there, and also Matt Smith's acting all the way through, especially, especially his poisoned, being poisoned acting, and you know slipping around on the floor in that gangly way. We were talking about Harold Lloyd and Chaplin mm-hmm. uh, and, and people like that. Well, it helps when he dresses in a tuxedo and top hat, <laughs> which immediately, I mean, that again works. Just saying, Indiana Jones and Simon Simon has director. something to say. It was directed by Richard Senior. Okay. Oh really? Wow, that's not one of the ones that often no, gets cited, no. is it? Yeah. So, um, 
Matt Smith, yeah. Another criticism of Series 6 is that Matt Smith did all his good work in Series 5 and then was coasting on air thereafter. But the last 15 minutes of this suggests complete... Well, the whole of this, really, but especially the last 15 minutes. He might have been doing that a bit in the Flesh episodes, but definitely not in this one. No. I don't think. He's fantastic in this. Right from the start, because, and this is the other, other elephant in the room, is the baby. Well... <clears throat> right, before I say my piece on it, how satisfied stroke unsatisfied was anybody about how they dealt with it? In what way? Well, the big question, the big criticism is they've lost their baby. Shouldn't that have been a more significant thing? And they didn't deal with it well enough. Yeah, I mean, I think so as well. I, there, there should be more psychological bashing going on there in in. Amy's head and Rory's head at some point in the series but you know it, it's supposed to be like it's a Saturday night evening kind of family adventure Rump. film yeah. uh, adventure series so you don't want to be dwelling too much on the darkness but actually oh, you know oh, my baby's gone but you know it's kind of weirdly dealt with in this very clever flashback sequence which you then you realise at the end of the episode well you grew up with her anyway you grew up there, there is a line isn't there that you you did you brought her up. You brought her up. Well, you but she says up, that herself. Now yeah, says yeah. it but just badly, before she... badly because she's a delinquent. Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> I, th- I think the fault is possibly with with the episodes leading up to this. Yeah, fault because they've made a big thing about the connection between Amy and the baby in A Good Man Goes to War, and I don't buy entirely that the bond hadn't been formed because she didn't know she was pregnant and then the baby had gone. I think. The good man goes to war demonstrates that bond through her performance and through the loss of the baby. Mm. Whereas I think if that hadn't been so heightened, then the the comedy here would have worked a bit better. But to deal with but that in a comedic that, way, this was three months after the other. Whereas we've just watched it like a week, a fortnight after yeah. the other. Yeah. But I did, sort of did anybody watch the prologue thing? No. The prequel. No. no. That deals with it too. In fact, exclusively, that's the only thing that deals with. So it's two minutes long, and it's lots of close-ups of the TARDIS console with nothing happening, and the camera just slowly panning around the TARDIS console, and the Doctor's answer phone goes, and it's Amy, and the first few seconds are, did you realise you had an answer phone, Doctor? And if not, don't be scared, it's not an invisible me, it's me on the answer phone, this kind of stuff. And then she suddenly gets really serious and says, what about my baby? You said you'd find my baby, yeah. you said you'd bring my baby back, but you haven't, I haven't seen you, where have you been, where's my baby? And gradually the camera pans around to the console and she's saying, you can't be there, you'd have picked up the answer phone by now, are you looking for my baby? And finally it lands on the doctor's face and there's Matt Smith Standing there, looking guilty as sin. Mm. So that so that doesn't help. <laughs> Good man gets more because that continues to. But then in let's kill Hitler, yeah. they deal with they, it about yeah. four times. Yeah, they deal with it in the dialogue, but I think the tone, they deal with the tone, it in the performances, under, but the tone well. undermines that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. There, when he walks out the TARDIS and he says permission to Rory and goes up to Amy and gives her a hug, yes. you know that that's enough. That's enough between them. Do you think? Know? Well, because he yes, hasn't brought but, her baby back. No, but it's no, done, but it, that's the point. I that think it's, hug you can see on their faces. He's on guilty faces. and she's concerned, so, but he hasn't brought their baby back. 
And then the plot kicks off. Yes. And you have to move on. Yeah. And yeah. but that's but that is yeah. a metaphor for the series itself. It's saying for three months we've been away. Yes. And for all this time, presumably the doctor's He's been, been looking. looking. Yeah. Yes. But he hasn't found the baby because that is the fixed point. Yes. That illustrates the fact that they're going to try and change the Doctor's timeline. The line, time can be rewritten, yes. is in the dialogue in this episode from one of the characters in the Tesselector, right? Yeah. Mm. So the Amy and the baby storyline is the fixed point. That's yeah. already happened. Yeah. Around which they're trying to weave the time can be rewritten thing. Yeah, so logically it all works out. But my problem is with Amy's reaction in the previous episode <clears throat> and now presumably in the prequel and her reaction in this episode. It's not... She's distracted by the hitler <coughs> and the comedy of the plot. She sort, of, she she sort of moves is. on quite quickly. Well, she doesn't have a, that moment in the story where she's shown to deal with the fact that she's always known her baby but she didn't know it was her baby. And well, that's I quite do, a big psychological I do thing. Think they do. I think it's in that scene where they get the regeneration. I think the way the characters react is saying that. She might have a shocked look on her face, but I think it needs more than... I think it needs a scene on its own, or even... I don't think even it does. Half an episode on its own, because this is a big thing. It, but, or, or it's been made to be a big thing by the I don't think it's been episodes. made to be as big a thing as you're making out that it has. Well, by because I think by the, there should be there should be a performance or a moment in this that balances the performance of loss in *The Good Man Goes to War*. So Amy shows genuine loss in *The Good Man <coughs> Goes to War*, and there should be a moment in this that balances that. And I don't think there is. It's there's there's not that sort of. I think I think what you're after is a weighty Russian play version of this. No, I just I just want a bit lots of wailing. And... No, I just want a bit <laughs> a bit of a balance. I think, yeah. and and it's, it's it's for reasons that I like. Let's kill Hitler because it's light and comedic <laughs> and feels like a fresh start. But I don't think I don't think Amy in the previous episode was ready for a fresh start. I think I was, and I think the story was. But that's the whole point. It carries on. You say in the previous episode she wasn't ready for a fresh start. That's the whole point of the three-month gap. Yeah, but I didn't. I can remember not thinking it at the time as well. The criticism was from the the time, but the criticism was from the well. And the criticism was from fans. And again, I'm speaking about it as myself. So, but I'm trying to be a bit more objective about it. Okay. And I'm saying for three months... But, but you're speaking as a fan because you're looking at the way the story logically resolves itself. No, so you're focused... I think the way the story it, logically think... resolves itself is looking at it as a critic. Okay. But but you're looking at the way the, the story flows from one episode to three months later. Surely that's... I'm looking at the way the emotions <coughs> and the tone flow from one to another. But it doesn't flow. It stops. The story? No, the emotion. Well... Yeah, so so that's the problem. There should be there should be some some. But it does address it about four times. It addresses it, but she doesn't show it. But it addresses it. Well, you show does not, show it show in the tell. scene where she hugs the doctor. <laughs> I don't think it does. And all that. I don't think stuff. that's. I don't think that's enough to balance the loss that she demonstrated in the previous episode. I, mean, I think that's been acknowledged by, no, the, by the writers that they didn't just, quite get Stephen Moffat himself. Well, we, no, we just have to assume right. that the three months he's been away, that she's had all of this, this, this massive emotion. But, but that just undercuts what JR's saying that 
in the no. prequel and and in the hug. So no, the prequel can be any both, time. It prequel can't be both ways. So either she gets over it in the three yeah. months, but we can see that she hasn't because she's still yeah. talking but about it. But the prequel well, could are. have been you any time said, within the three We months. can see that she hasn't. Yes, but that's but what you were just asking for. That we didn't get. We can see that she hasn't got over it, and then when the revelation happens. She that's, get time. That's, that's when, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's enough. Not having time, I don't think is enough. I think she needs to have a moment where she actually shows some emotion that balances her loss. So don't you think it prequel's enough? Lost. Well, for the no, viewers. Because, no, not, because the, when... pre- the prequel shows that she's still concerned about the baby. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about the episode. Her, I'm shows talking that about her reaction about to the, the revelation that her baby. Is River Song. Or her baby, she's known it is Melody Pond, and she's known Mel's all her life. That's, yeah. That yeah, but they've only got 45 reaction. minutes to tell a story. Well, well, I, think I, think that's, I, think that's not an, I don't think that's a good excuse. No, no it's I not don't. an excuse. This is, this is a character based. It's not an excuse, it's the reason. There's a difference between an excuse and a reason. The character spends the three months concerned about the baby, but the viewer doesn't. So what Let's Kill Hitler does is captures up the character to where the viewer is. So so would Let's Kill Hitler be better if it didn't have the bits about the baby at the beginning? Or talking about... Because you've just said that Amy is obviously still concerned about her baby at the beginning. Yes. So why would that... Would it be better without that concern? Why, why would she, it be if without she, that like, Lee, like Lee said, if she got over it in the three months over the summer. No, not, she, not it, that she but, gets yeah. over it. The viewer gets over it. She has time to process it, right. but that doesn't mean she gets over it. Right. So, so across those three months, she spends the three months concerned about her baby. Yes. But aware that her baby grows up to be River Song. Yes. Which means that intellectually, subconsciously, she's processing the fact that she doesn't get to grow up with her baby. Right. And then when you get to the episode, she's still in that place where she's concerned about the baby. Right. But the viewers, 90-odd percent of the viewers, right. have pretty much forgotten about it till they're reminded about it at the start right. of this episode. And then at the start of this episode, it deals with all that stuff about right. three or four times, as I've said. Yes. And you do get emotional beats, because the bit where she meets the Doctor... That is quite an emotional moment. I thought that was quite yeah, an effective I moment. I don't think I'd buy it. I think but... I think a good man goes <laughs> to war is set up. The end of a good man goes to war is set up as the doctor's going to get the baby back. No, I, I don't think I, it is. Well, because that's what that's what the doctor says it, at the it, end it, of a good yeah, man goes but... to war. So it's explicitly set up. No, it's not explicitly set up that's because what... at the end of a good man goes to war, explicitly we are explicitly shown. That the baby grows up to be River Song, yes. and so therefore, so, explicitly, the Doctor doesn't so get the, the baby back. The the it couldn't be the clearer. The last line of dialogue, which is shown in the previously on Doctor Who, is "Your baby's going to be fine. I'm going to, I'm going to sort." And this. we know and the that the Doctor has just fallen as far yeah. as he's ever going to fall. And fails so I at think, things. I think that last and one... explicitly, we know that the baby grows up and I think to that... be River Song yes. rather and than growing that... up with Amy and Rory. The doctor saying that and Amy saying, So have you found my baby at the beginning of Let's Kill Hitler? I think that out that overlays what you're saying. I think that. No, she that knows he hasn't found that the baby. She presents these stories as the beginning, the on, end then. of one story and the beginning of the other as. The hunt for Amy, the doctor hunting for Amy's baby. 
takes the, place off screen in the three months in between. The line, have you found my baby, is a setup for the big joke that all of a sudden their baby turns up, the baby finds yeah. them. The field. Yeah, but it's the fact that it's a big joke that's the problem that doesn't work with her with her her demonstration of loss. I don't think it's a joke as such, but I think it's to do with the logic of the story. Does it, yeah, that, the logic of the story It's works. the same thing about the, the, within certain stories... They have their own sense, and certainly with Stephen Moffat's stories, they have their own logic and their own sense. Yeah, the logic. Yeah. I'm the not logic, saying you're wrong. The logic I'm, I'm works. Just, yeah, and I like the tone of this story. Yeah, I just don't think it balances in this one instance mm. with the tone of a that particular part of a good man goes to war. But, but she knows my. I think, my, I think, I think, that's, back with the been, I think that's been accepted. By, you're right. That's the one. That's the one thing that they would do differently. But that tone plays but out only in the three months the off that, screen. But only yeah, because of the way the fans but, dealt with it. But off screen? Yeah. Well, you could suggest that that's one bracket around the, the grieving process. Mm. And then the other bracket is where she hugs the doctor and says, have you found my so, baby yet? So, okay, so, so for me, yeah. that bracket isn't very well defined. No. That there needed to be something more something more demonstrated as a mm. bracket than the hug or but are you the thinking, logical Are you thinking the jump tonally from, from the Doctor? Because I, I, I see what you're trying to get at, because the Doctor does jump into the TARDIS smiling, weirdly, uh, and going, don't worry, your baby's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort it all out. And I think he says I the baby's gen- okay because he knows the baby grows up well, to be really yeah. Of course he does. But, but there's also the thing, why is he getting into us and going away then? He's going away because he's going to try and find the baby to bring back so she can at least have a go at being right. There, there must be a reason why he's getting in the yeah. TARDIS. That must be it. It is the yeah. only reason. So I understand what so we're all looking forward to him and they trying show, to find a baby. And they show that moment and in the beginning of Let's Go Hitler. So that's still there. But he goes into the TARDIS as a man who knows he's not going to find the baby, but needs to demonstrate his willingness to try. And across yeah, so that three in, months... In, in plot logic, it works. I'm not denying that the plot in, logic works. No, in, I'm talking about the, the, the tone and the use of emotion in the TARDIS. But episodes. emotionally, it works as well. He needs to... Well, it doesn't he, work for me. Well, okay. Do you think it no, works for me? And it doesn't work for that's people who have problems with the... Yeah, but the people who have problems with the it was 1% of the viewership. Okay. And Stephen Moffat. That's well, interesting. No, that's Stephen, Moffat's, Stephen Moffat, in interviews... Has acknowledged, often, has acknowledged... Has acknowledged that fans had a problem with it. No, he didn't. He acknowledged that it was one... It was one error that he made that he would have done differently. Yeah, no, okay. And he said, well, maybe that was the error I made. Okay. So that word maybe. Can I ask a question? Because it's interesting. So do you think the doctor stepped into the TARDIS fully aware that he wasn't going to find the baby because he already knew where the baby was going to end up? Yes, absolutely. And then was was guilty? But it's, yes, it's not because I was under the impression he he had kind of failed, but that's the reason why. He's failed because there's a difference between knowing at your core Mm. that you're going to fail at something but wanting to try anyway. I think mm. I think the reason why we had Let's Go Hitler like we have it <laughs> is because they realised that you can't... They wanted to sort of reboot the series again. They wanted to draw new viewers. They have to do it with a light episode. And so they have to, like, not brush, not brush Amy's baby under the carpet, but just move forward in logic terms rather than emotional terms. Halfway through otherwise, story. otherwise they would have two episodes with Amy dealing with the group. Well, it's not there baby. for new viewers because it's still halfway through a story. No, I think and it, it's felt, resolving... it, felt like a, it felt like a reboot. It felt like a, a fresh... Mm. I mean, it definitely no, feels it's, like a fresh story. It's, it's got a, a tone. Fresh, that's, that's Frank Moffat doing a tonal split in between yeah. the two stories. He always does that anyway. Yeah, like... in between the first and second half of a story. And that's what's happening here. It's not 
a refresh for new viewers. It's a refresh for the viewers who are already there. So saying you think you knew what this story so was are about. Ele- there are elements not. that made it feel like a refresh to me in that we start with Amy and Rory on the earth after a gap and <coughs> on the earth. Mm. The doctor arrives. We have a bit of an introduction actually to Amy and Rory through flashbacks, even though it's intended to be an introduction to Mel's, it also serves as an introduction to Amy and Rory. Then you see them rejoin well, the target, so it feels, like, Rory, it feels it? like a fresh start. It does, it, feels like it a, does actually. Yeah, it feels right, like it a new start, but that, which is that, appropriate for where the, the episode fell. Yeah, that, that's just a statement though, isn't it? That's not really... Um, there's no way of getting away from the fact that it was a second premiere episode. Yeah, it well, was a was season premiere. <laughs> No, well, I don't, that's no, not well, true at all. You said, you, you said it wasn't a... Uh, it's not a fresh start for new viewers. You said it was a fresh start to get new viewers. I'm saying it's not a no, fresh I'm start... Saying, I'm saying it's a fresh start that could attract new viewers. That's what a fresh start does. So if you are if you're happen to not have seen the series before and you start at this point, then you could spring on board. I don't you? know, I don't think so. I think if you came on board now, you'd be well confused. I don't, this is all <laughs> resolving just, things from the first half of the series. We're bound to be confused. I think that's all besides the point. I think the yeah. point is that the series was split in two, therefore it couldn't come back as if it was business as usual. No. Because there was a massive gap in between. So you've got two peaks. You've got a peak at the start of the season and a peak at the second half <laughs> of the season. Yeah. And that's why it comes across as being... Well, that's why they and had just to make like, it. Yeah. That's why they had to make it tonally light. They made and it just fresh, like, light. And just like Lee says, when Stephen Moffat does two-part story, the second half feels like a completely fresh start from the first one. Here, he's doing that across the series, mm. so it's even more exaggerated. Yeah, and even more so to round the point home that it does feel like a fresh start. Matt, is that the Doctor logo is actually the new Doctor Who logo? If you look at it closely. They've Sorry. changed logos? No, you know the new Doctor Who logo? It's got the line going through it. Yes. Yeah. Dull. It, oh, okay. It's yeah. exactly the same the, as the uh, crop circle the one. Field. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> oh, well, that's because Time we've got a... Well, there we go. Yeah, well, we've got somebody regenerating into a woman. Is that what you were talking about? What? <laughs> Is that what you're referring to? No, the logo in the crop circles. I know what you're talking Good about. God, what's he on I d- well, I love that bit when they suddenly go, hang on a minute, we didn't do that line there. Yeah. That is brilliant. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's lots and lots of those moments in this episode. Right, now I've been so distracted, I've forgotten all the other things I was going to bring up. <clears throat> Anything else about this episode then? Somebody else throw something in. We have a song. Sexy ass. Yeah, that was the thing. A lot of people said, oh, she's behaving like a child compared to what she used to behave like when she was much later and therefore much older in her timeline. That was quite a common complaint I saw. Really? Yeah, people didn't actually... People watched this episode and didn't actually realise that Alex Kingston was giving us Adolescent River Song and thought thought that her performance was a backward step because she was behaving in a more childlike so way. she was born mature, basically. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Some of the people give this like one out of ten and will level criticisms oh, like dear, that at dear. it. It's ridiculous. That's unbelievable, isn't it? There's some lovely moments, there's some lovely lines all the way through this and they, they get missed and they're not, they're not really necessarily hugely funny lines but they make me chuckle. And one was the woman in the test selector where she's running uh, down a corner and she goes, um, five minutes to the eye. <laughs> was it five seconds to the eyeball? Oh, I didn't so think she was very good, to, to be honest. 
my, my favorite where, where is, would you get that in a seat my favorite is uh amy asking rory if he rode uh, a motorbike and he said i expect so it's that Back sort of day, day. Yeah. <laughs> i remember really liking that when it was on the first time as well it's yeah. a really good line and you know when they when they stop out, it's just it's comedy moments all the way through it. It's a comedy yeah. episode. I think that kind of is what is without going back into the that bloody argument again, <coughs> is I think that Don't kind of counterbalances the emotion. Is the fact that it is. Rory's reaction, you know, it's that mm. kind of day. It, yes, they don't have time to think about. Yeah, anything well, serious. Yeah. They're, they're, they're often because and then the doctor, been thrown up in the air, and then the doctor's done. So they're really trying to focus on that as well. But, mm. And then one criticism I'd probably level at it is that when Amy and Rory are inside the test lector, you've got the antibodies about to kill them, and they're going, "Doctor, help us, help us, help us!" And it takes about two or three minutes because you have mm. to have that slow TV emotional scene. Well, it's, yeah. it's that version of the scenes of them in the TARDIS in Doctor's Wife. Yeah, it exactly. kind of falls on the cliche of the male and female companion running around corridors just to give them a little bit of jeopardy. Yeah, but that was handled but, better, I think, because it was more interesting. What did you think of the antibodies? Oh, they were just, they were very, they were straight out of an annual, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. They reminded me there's our cameras used to have upside down in department stores, <laughs> which we always used to call Daleks anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're right. Exactly what <clears throat> well, I've often said that Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is like annual stories brought to life. <laughs> In some respects, things like Asylum of the Daleks. Um, another big moment then is the fact that River Song gives the Doctor her. Okay, let's talk about River Song for a minute because as soon as Mel's turns into River Song, she's back in right. I'm the assassin mode. So that kind of work. It's a slightly odd moment. It sort of works within the logic of the series. Because we're starting to learn that River Song is the assassin who does do the killing of the Doctor at Lake Silencio. So this also reflects back on um, the Big Bang, where how did the TARDIS come to be exploding when only River Song's in it? Mm. And so presumably that's something that she, sort of under hypnotism or whatever, did... Well, hang on. So, but in the Big Bang, she's got her, she's got over her. So she gets over her brainwashing at the end of this story. <clears throat> so she well, she loses her conditioning very very quickly. She does, but in the Big Bang, there's also silence will fall. That line at the end, yeah, which suggests that the silence are still around, yes, and have influenced her. So if she's got over her conditioning. And then years later comes across a silence. Okay. It, it's a bit like a sleeper agent. Oh right. I thought, sort of. I thought that meant, just meant that one of the one of the silence was in the TARDIS and was well, playing with the TARDIS. Well, maybe. It's either or. But yeah. what I'm saying is. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, this makes that ambiguous now. Okay. So it could be that there was a silence in there who caused the explosion, right. or it could be that the silence triggered her conditioning again, okay. and she caused the TARDIS to explode because she's the only one in it. And right. now that makes that really ambiguous. Okay. How, this has happened while she's in it. And how, now, did, how did making the TARDIS explode kill the Doctor? Because that was her conditioning. <clears throat> well, it would have killed the Union. Well, yeah. It's, okay. Yeah. But it's one of those things. It's one of those, you blow up somebody's house, and the fact that they happen not to be in it is, you know, 50-50 chance. 
Presumably, I mean, we don't know because it's ambiguous, but presumably the thinking could have been, if I set the TARDIS up to explode, then as soon as the Doctor gets here, oh bugger, it's gone early. Right. Okay. You know, something like that. Okay. It's it's very ambiguous. It's open but, for discussion forever, isn't it? But yeah, but I think this episode now makes it open for discussion because now, we, unlike if we hadn't had this episode, River Song could have been programmed to kill the Doctor only at Lake Silencio and never at any other time. But the fact that she's willing to try killing him here too kind of opens up the fact that she's been programmed to kill him mm. for it to take place any time and anywhere. And potentially, you know, because she's had that programming in her, even if she's got over that conditioning, that's still dormant in her mind. Yeah. So it, it sets up an ambiguity about the character all the way through from start to finish, pretty much. With the, with the late delay, and we'll get, probably get to this in months' time, yeah. wasn't that... She had no control because she was in a mechanised spacesuit that was doing all the moving for her. Well, so they sort of put her into the spacesuit. So actually, it wasn't River Song's conditioning that was killing the Doctor at Lake Silencio. Well, no, because she stops it, doesn't she? Yeah, exactly. But it was the spacesuit itself that was controlling, controlling the movement. The second time after yeah. the first time where she. Well, I don't know. Either time we'll get to it. Yeah, but I don't know. No, because she's. Well, it, the spacesuit may or may not, but she has been raised to be an assassin either way. Mm. So presumably the spacesuit is a failsafe against her overcoming her conditioning to okay. make sure it happens. Okay. Must be quite fun sitting there writing um, River Song's <laughs> kind of, you know, story because obviously, right, we know she dies in the library and she dies. So we're all thinking, you know, oh, okay, she's human, she dies. But now we know she's a time or two in Let's Go Hit. I'm thinking all the way through, so how's he going to get out of this thing? Because pl- surely she should have regenerated. And I was, I remember watching the first time thinking, how is he going to get around this? And of course, plainly, she does that amazing magical thing by just giving all of her regenerations back to the Doctor. So it must have been great if I'm trying to work it out and go, oh, I know, I'll have the Doctor actually die. Mm-hmm. That'll freak everybody out. And then she'll just <clears> give <throat> all of her regenerations to easy I mean, that, or, I mean, River Song isn't really a... Eureka moment, isn't, isn't really it? a Time Lord, so we don't quite know... Yeah, we don't what, know how many sort of regeneration should have had. Or... No, that's true. But, it's, it's... But, yeah. but the fact that you had the child regenerating into Mel's, as we find out, and then Mel's regenerating into yeah. River yeah. suggests she's got a cycle. Mm-hmm. So it was something that needed to be addressed. Yeah. Because otherwise it would have been open-ended like Lisa's. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and that scene at the end where she's in the bed and um, she's with Amy and Rory... That's so sweet. Mm. That is, that is, sort of the equivalent, in some ways, of here's a child who's now discovered they've got a terminal illness, mm. because prior to giving all her regenerations to the doctor, she would have, well, whether she would have known or not, but she would have been aware that there was a good chance that even when she died in this body, she would have several others afterwards. And now all that's been taken away from her. So even though, lying in that bed with Amy and Rory, <laughs> she might be thinking, well, I've still got 50 years ahead of me or whatever, however long it might be. But still, she knows that this body then is it. So it is well, kind it's of... Not only, it's not only that. It's almost like giving her up for fostering. Because well, they're, well, they're yeah. leaving her in a safe place <clears throat> in the future. Where they know that 
she'll be looked after, which is what the doctor says, because it's the best hospital mm. in the, mm. the universe. And then she gets handed on to the university, so she gets her education. So it's almost like they're leaving their baby somewhere for fostering and adoption. Well, the baby is the flying the nest. How did uh, Amy and Rory get home from Demon's Run? How did Amy and Rory get home from Demon's Run? Did I miss something? A river song, presumably. Somehow. What, on her back? <laughs> Does it matter? Flying through the sky. She's I don't know, a, just, just one of those things. time controller thing, isn't she? Okay. Vortex yeah. manipulator. Vortex manipulator, okay. That'll do. <clears throat> well, it... Sorry, it's been a bit of a fan there. I was thinking, how'd they get home? Well, well the, the Vortex same, manipulator... How did, how did the Silurian and what's-her-name get home as well? And Strax. True. There must have been a lot of, like, back and forth. Lot, lot back, a lot of back and forth, man. Yeah. The Vortex Manipulator shifts four people in one go in time and space at the end of Utopia, doesn't it? Or at the start of... Um, what's that one after Utopia and before last time? Sound Sound Trumps. Trumps. Trumps, yeah. yeah. So you'd need one shifting... Six? Five? Six? Seven? Two trades? Strikes, whatever. Strikes is potentially dead. But not dead. Yeah. <clears throat> Two trips. Yeah. I mean... It's it's one of those logistic problems yeah, yeah, where it's yeah. not really a problem, is it? Let's be honest. <laughs> Going across the river on the back of a crocodile. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, I've <laughs> <laughs> Any more things about this then before we... Just trying to think what else. What did you think of that? There, there were a couple of moments in this. I didn't do my... What do I think of it now? There were a couple of moments in this that I thought... Mm, and one of them was where she goes into the university at the end and it's like, why have you... After all these amazing lines throughout the entire episode mm-hmm. and then the one you leave it on, I'm looking for a good man, is a bit of a sort of a mm, clunky moment. <laughs> or does anybody disagree? No, I, I agree with you. I thought I was, it, it, they didn't need to really say anything, actually. Nothing needed to be said. Yeah, the, it's sort of like a wink to the audience, and the audience are thinking, yeah, okay, maybe wink with your other eye next time or something. <laughs> and then the um, he does that thing that Russell T. Davies did with the four knocks, where they're talking about, oh, we should talk about silence in a minute. Mm. But they did that thing where it's like, so what's the reason behind all this? Oh, it's all about the first question. Mm. And all that stuff was a bit kind of, there will be four knocks. And I thought, yeah, it was a bit need that. But what yeah. I was thinking today was, I'm much more comfortable now with the idea that the Doctor can meet his greatest peril periodically. So you get, so this, and also Trenzalore, and also the Capaldi ending. I'm, I've, when Doctor Who first came back, I was sort of thinking, well... The end of the world, the end of the universe, the end of time. I'm thinking, well, how many times can the Doctor die? How many times can this happen? And I felt a bit like that with Stephen Moffat, but actually now I'm more at peace with that because it's happened so many times. Mm -hmm. I realise that in my head, the cycle resets itself and I'm now quite happy Mm -hmm. to watch Jodie Whittaker race towards some big dramatic climax Four then, times in her in her reign yeah, as the yeah, Doctor. Yeah. Back in like 1976, you had Planet of Evil, where if the Doctor doesn't sort out the antimatter, the entire universe will be destroyed. But, followed a week later by Pyramids of Mars, 
where if the Doctor doesn't sort out Sutek, the entire but universe in way, but in a way it was easier <laughs> be to, it was easier to accept in the original series because the story arcs weren't as explicit. So they they well, weren't, yeah, but... weren't reaching a climax in each season. <clears throat> I think when no, you're but to... in each story they're reaching the yeah, same climax. And that's, and yeah, that makes it slightly easier to accept. Because well, no, you, you personally, I find it harder to accept. Well, but I just forget about it and say that's Doctor Who. That's what it does. I'm, I now watch old Doctor Who in random order. So, oh yeah, but so if actually... you're watching them in a row, <laughs> so so I love the way you say that as if it's massively against your fan gene. Well, to do that. you just watch it randomly. But I think but if you watch it in order, there are three stories in season thirteen where the threat is to the entire universe. Yeah, Morbius being the and other. And I think one. with the the old series, you're sort of pre-programmed to accept it's a new start each story <coughs> because that's the way it was made. With, with these ones, Nick, because with the new series, because it's always reaching a season finale, I think you're looking at the seasons as being the equivalent of the individual stories almost in the old series. And so it's a bit more pronounced, I think, because the season finales are always like, <clears throat> what's the biggest thing we can do? What's the biggest thing we can do? They weren't thinking like that in the original series. It was more sort of, yeah, we can put the universe at peril. We can put the universe at peril. But it's, it was much more condensed in the original series. Mm. Well, yeah, that made it worse. That made you go no, three times in a year instead of every I year. Made, I think the, the, the fact that they did it more made it easier to, to take. Oh, God, no. Well, you get used to it. Well, that's it, but you shouldn't be getting used to it, <laughs> okay. should you? Well, I never got used to it. I always thought, oh, God, does it have to be the entire universe in but, peril again this week? It was always... all... Sorry, come on. No, no, you go. I was going to say, it was, my, it was always my big, not concern, but uh, niggle <coughs> with RTD was that those climaxes were getting bigger mm. and bigger and bigger, and it's like it didn't leave you anywhere to go after that. And it's what JL's saying, it's the portentousness, it's the, mm. the kind of the, the foreshadowing. And you didn't get that in the old series, which in the new series is better because it's, because it's got these sort of, these kind of individual stories, but also a drive towards a big story at the end. Whereas the original series didn't have that. Which are mostly character-based as well. You weren't about the characters. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, it's the Doctor that's in peril. It's Clara that's in, in peril. Yes. You know, as opposed to the universe. You, you get used to these lovely people and you're yeah. thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? And oddly, they play on that in Let's Kill Hitler when he's cycling through the potential voice interfaces for the TARDIS. And oh, you, yeah. have, you have Rose and you go, no, actually, I can't, I can't, can't see Rose. That. There's too much guilt. And then Martha... Actually, no, no, no. I screwed her up as well. <coughs> Donna, absolutely not. I screwed her up as well. So you, you, you realise that actually the Doctor's in the cycle of basically screwing people up, mm. which you kind of didn't get in the original. And, and I'm not saying this is a criticism <coughs> of the new series. I'm saying I've come to accept that in the new series. Well, you need character development. With it. Yeah. And the only, you can't, the only way to do character development with somebody travelling in time and space and having, and like, being on a permanent round-the-world trip, except it's the universe, but with all this peril, is to show that this peril has an effect, isn't it? Mm. He did mess up Andrew's life a bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the original series, you did have character development, but it was mostly the actors themselves yeah, injecting great. it to you. So it was the... It was the <coughs> it was the chemistry between Elizabeth Sladen and Tom Baker where yes. they were kind of playing, they were adding to the lines and they were playing it as if it was a fun trip. It was like reverse development for Sarah Jane though because she starts off as this journalist mm. 
who's investigating things all the time and has this questioning mind. And yet, by the time you get to Mask of Mandragora, when she asks a question, it's a big plot point because she must be being hypnotised if she's asking questions. (coughs) It's like, well, that is the opposite of the Sarah Jane Smith we met three years ago. Mm. It's reverse character development. Obviously, the friendship between them, as shown between the actors, like you said, well, it's still character but, development, but if she regresses, it does, it's not. It's still character well, it's not, development. Kind of, it's, it's, still, it's not deliberate character development. No, it's just no. the writers have forgotten who they're writing for. Essentially, interestingly, is watching some of the Sarah Janes with my daughter, and and they infer that she got screwed up by the Doctor as well. Mm. Yeah, because she said that no one else ever measured measured up to. Him. From that point on, and he so buggered off and didn't say hello. Oh, good. <coughs> yeah, and he came back to say hello. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah, but that—that's a modern take on a classic character, isn't it? Mm, mm-hmm. So yeah, silence. Then we learn that they're a religious yeah. order rather than a species. Mm-hmm. I said that line was coming up. I couldn't remember where it was, and there it was in this one. And we also there were a couple of other things they said about the silence as well. So they're hinting at clues because at the start. It looks like it's just another, oh, this entire species is out to get the Doctor. And this is the episode then mm. where you learn it's not as simple as that and something else is going on. And then it's all about this first question thing, which I thought took it too far and she just left it as the silence was a religious order and left the mystery. Mm. I suppose actually by putting in it's all about the first question, you're actually pointing at a more specific mystery. But... It's, it's a bit too over the top for me <clears throat> those sorts of things it's a bit too over the top isn't it and it's also annoying because um, I still can't what was the question anyway Doctor Who yeah yeah bollocks I've, well I quite thought that was alright <laughs> it's slightly metatextual it's just bollocks the, it's a bollocks <clears throat> thing you know because you're sitting there going what's the question what's the question to the ultimate answer to the life universe the first question that's ever been asked (laughs) but it's the first question that's ever been asked in the series because it's in the title sequence of the very first episode but but they also play they also play on it in the sense that it's about his name yeah and a good man goes to war and that's something that he gives to River Song because the only person he would give his name to was the person he he marries so it's it's got and there's lots of Clever parallels going on. In A Good Man Goes to War, we learn what the word doctor means or and has on, come to uh, mean. In different parts of the universe. And the fact that the word doctor comes to mean doctor because it's been given to the universe by the doctor, which is what then happens to River Song in this episode. She essentially names herself mm. because she tells the doctor she's called River Song, so the doctor tells her she's called River Song, and that's how she comes a on the name and again that's uh, in a slightly different way but in ways that parallel each other the doctor's name has changed I mean it's changed from what it was on Gallifrey but the, the, the sense of the doctor's name has changed in A Good Man Goes to War from meaning healer to meaning warrior and the, that echoes how River Song's name changes in Let's Kill Hitler from something that means the river that runs through the forest to something else that means the river that runs through the forest Mm. or the song of the river that runs through the forest, but in a different language. So there are all these parallels going Mm. on about what's going on. About names, yeah. But still, the first question, Doctor Who, is still a 
bloody stupid moment. <laughs> Maybe his name is Thames. Thames. Yeah, because then when they get married, she's River Thames. Wee. <laughs> Are you on well? I'm very tired. <laughs> Scores yeah. or anything else? Any more about the silence, actually, before we move on? Because that's. Uh, we didn't really get much of the silence. Apart we didn't from get much on the silence, but we're at a halfway point in the series. Or a... It's good to be reminded. Yeah, of... and it's because, effectively, after Day of the Moon, you don't know that there's going to be any more from the silence. Yeah. And you don't know that yeah. Madame Kaverian is going to be anything to do with the silence because there's no silence in A Good Man Goes to War. So this is prefiguring the fact that when you get to the end of the series, it'll be Kaverian and the silence, right? I wonder why there wasn't any silence in The Good Man Goes to War. Because it would be easy enough to put them in and to give them a role and then make that that connection. Unless they they decided after A Good Man Goes to War to connect the silence with... Kavarian. It's possible. Because sort of he did rewrite. They probably yeah, ran out of money. It's a lot of extras they've got to pay. Well, <laughs> I know. It would be easier, easier to use the silence than to have the headless monks. I mean, the headless monks are cool. But, yeah. But, yeah. What is, what is Stephen Moffat's obsession with monks? There's a lot of monks going well, on. Well, there's a. What's his thing about religion? That's more to his thing. I mean, he's, he's building up quite a nice sort of. What's the future of religion going to be? In yeah, these stories? He, yeah, but he's what? Yeah, but what? What he seems to have done with the clerics and things like that. Mm. He's just, but RTD did it as well. Yeah. RTD played a lot with religious iconography. He did. He but went RTD over the top, didn't he? With the yeah, kind of uh, Jesus religious. Well, RTD played with the iconography of the story of Jesus, whereas Moffat is playing with the iconography of the church. Mm. Yeah. So they're both doing Organized, the same thing, yeah. but doing slightly different takes on it but it's only there because that iconography is so potent mm. so if you're going to do something that is this big expensive mm. I mean look at uh, Star Wars the entire Star Wars saga is all about the iconography of religion as well isn't yeah, it look at Indiana Jones well yeah, yeah. that's, <clears throat> that's one, of the, take one, of the, again, yeah. one of the reasons why the fourth Indiana Jones movie doesn't work for me it's because it it's moves away from the religious God. iconography. The Doctor says, though, that the church has moved on in Flesh and Stone. Mm. But it hasn't, has it? Because it's exactly the same as what the Crusades may have been. Because well, it's, 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 it's just swapping a gun for a sword. It's, de- <laughs> it's developed, just not yeah. in a positive liberal direction. Well, I think the idea is that it moved on from the Crusades to now, to the point where the church isn't holding it literal sword even if it holds a figurative one and now it's moved on again back to where it came from but it's not always a negative depiction so in in Flesh and Stone it's still he's showing religion to be quite positive because are they peacekeepers then well they're sort but if you think about the way that guy dies in the end I can't remember the actor's name or the character's name Um, Father something yeah (laughs) But he's sacked. Ted? <laughs> no, yeah, he's in Game of Thrones. Mm. He's a really famous actor. Hugo Spirit? No. no. Oh, that... he looks a bit like him, doesn't oh, he? He does look like him. Oh, who? Yeah. People screaming at the podcast. Dominic. No. Idiots. Yeah, I know. Um, but he di- He sacrifices himself. And he dies a sort of a noble death. Mm. And that's, yeah. you know, that's because he he has faith in something. Yeah. So so it comforts him. The fool. 
I mean, <laughs> the, as it Moffat, progresses, likes... it becomes a bit more complicated about whether religion is or isn't. Yeah. See, Moffat likes to balance things like that. When there's something that's contentious, for every instance he puts in of a sort of negative take on it, he'll try and put in a positive one too. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance. So that if you don't, if you're, so that if you're a viewer and you're against something, then you'll have moments that you can take on board and moments that will irritate you, and vice versa. And um, <clears throat> I think he does that with a lot of things, actually. But also, I think that makes for a more rounded universe because in a universe there is balance. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are very few people, organisations, whatever, where there's not some good amongst the bad. Obviously, there are examples, but considering how many people there are on the planet, do you know what I mean? Those examples are isolated, except they're obviously in the news more because they're newsworthy, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, it just feels like more of a rounded universe when you get those instances of balance. And I think the whole thing about the silence being a religious order rather than a species, he's doing the same as what Russell T. Davis did with the Slitheen, mm. where they said it's a family business, not a species. He's given it a slightly more sophisticated modern spin a bit of a twist, yeah. that says it's not as simplistic as black and white is something that has a purpose behind it rather than it just being nature. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> Should we scores? I was or... going to say one they've missed a trick when River Song kicks open the doors of that big party and fires their guns off and says that line about not having anything to wear. They should have just played that Smith song. Didn't they? Haven't <laughs> we got a stitch to wear? That one. You know it because you, you, you're actually you're actually Morrissey. <laughs> I'm Morrissey. Yeah, that's what my wife says. You, you look like Morrissey. Oh, for oh, crying out loud. What? Yeah. Matt looks more like Morrissey than I do. No, no she said, what? looks like what? Morrissey. And I said, yeah, he's letting himself go. <laughs> well, it's a height thing with Matt. Got more Jarvis Cocker to him. Well, Matt's a Jarvis Cocker. He's more of a Jarvis Cocker than Morrissey. Isn't yeah. Jarvis Cocker want to be Morrissey? Yes, but Jarvis Cocker and Morrissey are both tall. <laughs> Morrissey's not tall, is he? I yeah. don't like Morrissey. Nobody <laughs> likes Morrissey. That's such Morrissey a doesn't like po- Morrissey. Podcast. Mm. <clears throat> Morrissey's tall, is he? Yeah, I think so. It's never even occurred to me how tall he is. <clears throat> He's certainly taller than I am. Fair bit taller than I am. Is he? I didn't know that. You know, there's bed- more of Morrissey. You know that thing, bedtime. Well, <laughs> I remember. I remember when I used to go to bed in the evenings. No, oh, shut up! It's not that late, and certainly the podcast listeners don't need to know about it. Right? Let's give it a score, Simon. I'm looking at you. Oh my god! Go on. I want to give it a ten. I don't know if it is a ten, so I'll give it a ten. <laughs> Lee, um, I'm not going to give it a ten. I'll probably give it a nine. Of the initial view, maybe seven. Last few eight, but it's crept up to a nine. I just, uh, yeah, it's good, good fun. I'm going to give it an eight because good this is my day. second view. All right, and I it was a nine before, and this time watching it, I was thinking, oh, this is a ten, and then at other moments, I was thinking, oh, this is an eight. So I'll stick with a nine. There it is. So there you go. The most hated episode of series six, <laughs> and we've given it an average of nine out of ten. It's the most, most hated dance. episode, the one that's next week. I thought it was a dance, I'd better good one. Night terrors. Yeah. 
I thought that was the... I think that's the least regarded as opposed to most hated. Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Besides, we're not talking about Night Terrors. We've already reviewed it, so we're going to skip straight on... Are we? Oh. Yeah, we already did it. So we're going to skip skip straight on to... um, You can give it a little review. I like Night Terrors. Night Terrors is good. I like the, well, paint, the paint I think that's holes. what you said when we reviewed it before. Oh, was I here when we reviewed it before? I think so. It wasn't a long, long time ago. No, maybe it was just before. Okay. But yeah, we all liked it. I think we gave it an 8 out of 10 on average. No, I wouldn't have given it. I couldn't have been there. I'm not, I'm did I, I wasn't there. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't have given it that high. One of those ones that just did by himself. <laughs> no, <laughs> find the episode, listen back to it. I'm sure you were both there. Okay. And I'm sure, and I think it was one of those times where we actually sat down and watched it and recorded a podcast straight afterwards. And I think you both came in and said, oh God, I was really expecting not to like that. And yet it was really good. Oh, okay. I gave it a really nice score. And it's obviously got completely out of your memory. It has. I could be wrong, but oh, at be... least one of you would have been there, if not both of you. And I'm certain we gave it an 8 out of 10 at the end, sort of collectively. I'm I sure watch it again, aren't Because <clears throat> we all went in expecting it not to be terribly good, and we were all surprised by how good it was. Mm. Anyway, that's next week's review, in a nutshell, <laughs> from, from about two or three years ago. So we will skip straight on to The Girl Who Waited. All right, in that case, next week probably we might do Moffat Arcs or something else, I don't know, so that we do something else in between, we'll see. I'm thinking we should save the Moffat Arcs until we finish watching Series 6, really, because otherwise we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? That makes sense. So I'll try and find other things for us to do in between and we'll do Moffat Arcs afterwards. Until then, then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon.